Originally built as an orphanage before becoming a hospital and then later a lunatic asylum, this building has bore witness to all manner of horrors, including the death of a small, unloved child who was locked in a cupboard as a punishment and forgotten about, only later to be found dead. Today, knocking, banging, screaming and sobbing is heard coming from within cupboards in that area, which is nicknamed the Naughty Boys Corridor. It stood empty and abandoned for over 25 years, and now has a growing reputation which has seen it regularly named in top 10 lists of the most haunted places to be found in the UK. Full apparitions and shadowy figures are seen all too often here, and send people screaming in terror. Old wheelchairs and gurneys, remnants of the building's past, move all on their own. People have reported the feeling of being pushed down and feeling sick, and left physically shaken in some areas of this location. Whereas others have simply broken down in floods of tears, feeling utter despair and sadness, for no apparent reason. So tonight join me, as we head inside one of the scariest places in Liverpool. Let us explore Newsham Park Hospital. Welcome to episode 33 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location and of course the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we make our first trip to Liverpool and ask just how haunted is Newsham Park Hospital? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Newsham Park Hospital, then called the Liverpool Seamen's Orphanage Institution, was built in Liverpool by a group of ship owners and merchants, 
for the purpose of aiding the widows and families of those deceased and lost at sea. The building was the first of its kind in Liverpool. It was used for the support and education for British seamen's orphans. On December 16th, 1868, members of the public were assembled at the Mercantile Marine Service Association rooms. At this meeting, Ralph Brocklebank and Bryce Allen, philanthropists and shipowners, proposed the building of the orphanage. Another prominent shipowner, called James Beasley, was invited to be the chairman of the committee to establish the institution. Mr Beasley wrote to nine of his colleagues, and he promised £500 of his own money to the project if those nine would each pay in the same amount. A bank account on Brunswick Street at Haywood's Bank was opened, and within a few months there were enough donations from his colleagues to look for a temporary location. The temporary home at 128 Duke Street was chosen on the 7th of April 1869. By the end of that year, 60 children, 46 boys and 14 girls resided there. Then on the 7th of April 1870, Liverpool Town Council gave 7,000 square yards, or 63,000 square feet, of land to the construction of the institution. This was on the northeast side of Newsham Park. The foundation stone of the new building was laid by Ralph Brocklebank, who was the first president of the institution. That was on the 11th of September 1871, and the chapel's first stone was laid on the 1st of August 1873. The Liverpool Mercury newspaper carried the following report on the 2nd of August. It was entitled, Liverpool Seamen's Orphanage Institution Lay in the Foundation Stone of the Chapel. It reads as follows. The foundation stone of the chapel in connection with the orphanage, Newsham Park, was laid yesterday by a Mr C. McIver. There was a large attendance of spectators, amongst those present being the Mayor, Mr E. Samuelson, Messrs R. Brocklebank, J. Beasley, W. Langton, A. Brown, Clark Aspinall, A. Balfour, H. J. Ward, Samuel Smith, Joseph Armstrong, the Reverends Canon Stewart and Canon War, R. H. Lundy, P.T. Forfar, G. Lord, A. Pitt, Drummond Anderson and J. Turnbull. Captains Judkins, Lott, Inglis, Haynes and Bell. A number of the inmates, which is what the orphans were called, of the temporary home in Duke Street accompanied by the band of the institution occupied seats in front of the platform, and their clean and healthy appearance bore testimony to the care taken of them. Mr James Beasley, the chairman of the executive committee in opening the proceedings, said it was about four years since an appeal was first made to the public for funds to build the institution. Mr James Beasley, the chairman of the executive committee, in opening the proceedings said it was now about four years since an appeal was first made to the public for funds to build the institution from the tower of which the flag flew that day for the first time, and they hoped to open the building before the winter was over and admit 200 more children. But this depended in a great measure upon the joiners of Liverpool, who for the last two or three months had kept these 200 poor starving children out of the building. The building would cost around £25,000, and it would be opened entirely free from debt. They were now about to erect alongside of it a chapel, which apart from the higher considerations in favour of the scheme, would, he had no doubt, add very considerably to the funds of the institution by means of the offertory, after the Sunday services. The mayor, at the request of Mr Beasley, then took the chair, and a hymn having been sung by the orphans, and a prayer offered by the Reverend Canon Stewart, his worship, said he felt some months ago great delight in being able to congratulate those who interested themselves in this institution, 
that their efforts had attained such success. And he was now equally delighted to find that they were not contented that the children should be housed, but that they felt that their religious education should also be fostered. They had heard that, so far as the institution itself was concerned, all that was required had been received. But he had to make a strong appeal to the public on behalf of the building that they were about to erect. And he was sufficiently liberal to hope that when they erected a church on that side of the institution, that there would be others who would follow their example and build a chapel on the other side. It was sad to think that 200 children were kept out of the adjoining building in consequence of a misunderstanding between workmen and employer. It was indeed sad that the designs and intentions of benevolent men should be thus frustrated and the work of God impeded. He did hope that when the work upon which they were now engaged was commenced, they would not look back until the vein was put upon the spire. Mr MacIver then proceeded to lay the stone, using for the purpose a handsome silver trowel with carved ivory handle. It was manufactured by a Mr Mayor of Lord Street, and bared the following inscription. Presented to Charles MacIver Esquire, on the occasion of laying the foundation stone of the chapel of the Liverpool Seamen's Orphanage Institution, on the 1st of August 1873. On the 30th of January 1874, the North Wing was informally opened, and the children moved from the temporary space on Duke Street. It was formally opened on the 30th of September that same year by the Duke of Edinburgh, fourth son of Queen Victoria. A few years later, on May 5th, 1879, the Liverpool Mercury covered the event with the following words. On Saturday afternoon, a large party of ladies and gentlemen were assembled at the Siemens Orphanage, Newsham Park, to witness the opening of a sanatorium, which has been erected at the sole cost of around £4,000, of a Mr Ralph Brocklebank, the President of the Institution. The Mayor and Mayoress, Mr and Mrs T.B. Royden, were present to perform the opening ceremony. After the singing of a hymn by a number of the children, a procession was formed to the new building, and the appointments and arrangements of which were minutely inspected by the visitors. By June of 1884, approximately 400 children were living at the orphanage, and around 400 more children were being supported by the orphanage at home with their mothers. It was understood that the average annual cost to support one child in the orphanage was about £15, which is the equivalent of around £1,700 a day, compared with £8, which is the equivalent of about £900 a day, annually for those supported at home. The institution was purely being supported by voluntary donations. Queen Victoria was one of the patrons, having visited the institution in 1886 and added her name to the list. By 1899, 321 children lived within the orphanage, and a further 508 were receiving aid in the form of grants and clothing. From the outset, the education of the children was given top priority, and from 1892 the boys' school, and from 1898 the girls' school were administered strictly under government regulations, and the institution received a share of a parliamentary grant from the education department. The Church of England chaplain was in charge of the scholastic and religious instruction. Children of all religious denominations were assisted, though preference was given to the orphans of British seamen, especially those connected with the port of Liverpool. One of the inmates, which was the name given to the orphans, was Frederick Fleet. He was born in Liverpool in 1887. He never knew who his father was, and his mother abandoned him to run away to America with a boyfriend. Young Frederick lived here at the orphanage, and would later become a seaman, being immortalised as he was one of the two lookouts on the Titanic. 
and he was the first to spot the iceberg on that fateful night in 1912. In later life, he suffered severe depression, and he went on to take his own life. The First World War came in 1914, and brought 1,000 children to the assistance of the orphanage. Newsham Park Hospital was given royal appreciation during this time, as well as several visits by Queen Mary and Princess Mary. In 1921, King George V bestowed the title of royal upon the institution, and it was granted a royal charter of incorporation. In the interwar years, the institution made continued progress. During the Second World War, the children were evacuated to Hillbark, Frankby in the Wirral, which was the home of A.B. Royden, a devoted friend of the institution and a committee member. This is where the children remained and flourished as best they could throughout the Second World War. When the war ended in 1945, a return to Newsham Park was in order. However, with the expansion of the country's social service schemes, surviving parents were reluctant to place their children in an orphanage. A gradual decline of resident children took place, and another nail in the coffin came when a new law was passed. This prohibited children under 11 years of age from being educated in the same school as older children. Another law was passed, and young children could no longer live in an institutional school. Financial difficulties steadily increased with no prospect of bridging the gap between income and expenditure. Because of this, the Liverpool Seamen's Orphanage was closed on the 27th of July 1949. The founder's objective of providing means for the education and maintenance of the children was continued. The work of this institution continues today, with its centenary being celebrated in 1969. The building itself however had a different fate. In 1949, the decision was made to close it down, and in 1951 it was sold to the Ministry of Health. It would then become the infamous Newsham Park Hospital. Newsham Park Hospital opened its doors in 1954. The hospital developed its own psychiatric department and received an influx of patients with severe mental problems. The hospital officially stopped taking patients in 1988, and by 1992, all remaining patients and staff were relocated. In 1992, with the closure of Rainhill Lunatic Asylum, the inmates were moved to Newsham Park Hospital. They took up 90% of its space. £1.6 million was spent on the hospital so it could house its new patients. There are still notices posted on boards in the school block and paperwork on the property that are dated 1996. In 1997, all of the confidential records of the patients and staff were closed, not to be accessed for a hundred years. This is when the asylum was closed and the building was finally vacated of patients and staff. The empty site was bought at auction later that same year by Gateway Properties, a property developer, and in 2004 they submitted plans to develop the building into flats. But this caused local outrage and local regeneration campaigners saw this plan defeated. The building, with no purpose, was once again put up for sale in 2007, and it's now owned by Angle Farm Limited, who have done nothing with the building yet, but they have submitted plans to convert the old orphanage into an events venue. The building was originally created to house 400 children. However, during the Second World War, over a thousand were squeezed in, as the deaths of their fathers were rife, and the mothers, should there be one left, were unable to afford to care for the children themselves. This would have led to overcrowding and a rampant spread of illness. 
Here follows the account of Phyllis Gallimore, a resident during the orphanage days of Newsham Park Hospital. Here she told a horrible story to the BBC in 2014 of what the life and punishment was like here in the orphanage. I was five years old. The orphanage in Newsham Park was Oliver Twist style. Soup every day, and they weren't fussy about how they punished you. It was really cruel. Brothers and sisters were split up. You could only see your siblings for a few hours on a Saturday. Every Wednesday we would be served slink. This was basically all the leftovers from the week. Everything went into that pot. More often than not, it was made up mostly of stringy carrots. The mistress, Sally Seymour I think her name was, used to come and inspect our plates. She'd come round and say, you'll eat that. And if I hadn't eaten it by the time my meal was over, my plate would be represented to me at tea time with the carrots still on it. If I didn't eat it then, I got sent up to the matron's room where I was made to eat it. I had to think of a way out of this, so I hatched a plan. I had a handkerchief, a bit of linen, and I used to wrap the carrot up in there and put it in my knicker pocket. Then I would go to the grill in the yard afterwards and drop the carrot into the drain. Anyway, one day I was doing this when I felt a tap-tap on my shoulder. It was Sally Seymour. She made me bend over, fish the carrots out the drain, and eat them there and then. I was sick. To this day, I still can't bear carrots. Can't go near the things. For the children in the orphanage, punishments were severe, and this appears to have left its mark on the building in the form of the ghost said to remain here. One of the most haunted areas of the building is called the Naughty Boys Corridor. It is a long corridor at the top of the orphanage full of many small cupboards. This is where the children were taken for punishment during the orphanage days. Some of the most famous reports of the Naughty Boys Corridor are experience in the spirits of boys and girls, but also the spirits of the oppressive headmaster. Knocking, banging, screaming and crying can be heard, as if the little ones are still crying out to be released. Some children were locked in those cupboards for days at a time. The Naughty Boys Corridor consists of a row of cupboards that was used for locking up misbehaving children, and this was said to have resulted in the death of at least one child in the orphanage. Apparently a young orphan was locked inside a cupboard as a punishment. He screamed and he screamed until he fell silent. The nurses thought he had fallen asleep, but the next morning he was found dead. This claim is unsubstantiated. Records are hard to come by for deaths on the property. The problem with these older institutions is that there are no cameras or alarms, as we have today, or any way to find out what happened apart from just asking the staff. These same staff who were also responsible for filling out incident reports. As you can imagine, the staff would want to cover their own backs as best they could, so it's little surprise that there's no official records of any children dying from being locked in cupboards. It should also be noted however that child mortality was very common in the 1800s so there will have been frequent outbreaks of illness in the institution. Sadly, deaths of young children will have been commonplace, with thousands passing away within these very walls. One sad death we do know of is a girl, Elizabeth Ewer, who was buried aged 15 in the Anfield Cemetery after dying of two attacks of typhoid in the orphanage. There were other children who died of the outbreak. It's unknown how many, but they were buried with her in the same grave. There are stories of this place that range from escaped patients rampaging through the woods with an axe, 
to people being tortured to death within the bowels of the asylum. It seems that most of these stories are just not true, or massively unlikely to say the least. But it wasn't campfire stories which made this place so well known as being haunted. There didn't seem to be any reports of hauntings when this building was an orphanage. The first report of ghosts came after this building became an asylum, and the reports came from the nurses themselves. It's been written that one of the female nurses working here complained about being haunted by the apparition of children. Shortly afterwards, she was found dead at the top of a staircase on the main corridor, with no apparent cause of death. When the building was being used as an asylum, the patients who were housed on the top floor were often reported as being seen talking to somebody else in full conversation. The only problem with this is that they were all alone, seemingly talking to themselves. This may not seem out of the ordinary in an asylum, but the odd thing about this place is that the patients would often refer to the ones that they spoke to as the children, always describing them as young children who would just casually walk the hallways and speak to anyone they felt like. Various people who have visited Newsham Park Hospital have claimed to see the dark shadowy figures of children within the halls and the corridors, as well as the sound of light, small footsteps running around inside rooms which are known to be empty. Slow moving white mists are seen, as well as, bizarrely, a spectral horse on the ground floor of the former hospital. Screaming and crying is heard, as well as the sound of something or someone being dragged. Some terrified visitors have ran from the building having been all alone, and then heard a deep growling right in their ears, so close that they could feel and smell the breath on the side of their face. Poltergeist activity has been experienced, with doors slamming shut with force, and heavy tables being seen sliding across the floor. Since its closure in 1997, the building has fallen into a state of disrepair. Inside, it is littered with broken beds, commodes and trolleys from its time spent as a hospital. Abandoned wheelchairs are scattered throughout the building, and lockers still display the names of former owners, staff members who worked there daily in the building's former life. The mortuary fridges remain, where many dead bodies were stored. Workmen have reported tools that they've only just put down, simply vanishing into thin air, only for them to show up in other parts of the building, parts of the building which they haven't been into. In May 2017, John Gray, who worked at the Newsham Park Hospital for 13 years, spoke to the Liverpool Echo newspaper and described the old asylum as being so haunted that it's pure evil, and it should have been demolished. John Gray worked the hospital switchboard in reception from 1973 to 1986, and he said he couldn't have got out there quick enough following the paranormal activity that left him so traumatised he still has nightmares. The 84-year-old also attributes a number of unnecessary operations he underwent in the 70s on the bad luck brought on him from working in the Grade 2 listed building. He said... It's evil, pure evil. That place should have been demolished years ago. I worked long hard shifts at night, and staff were terrified of going into certain parts of the hospital. You could feel the evil when you walked in. It was in the atmosphere. When I was made redundant, I could not have got out there quick enough. Mr Gray used to live near what was then the Park Hospital, but he moved to Fazagali a suburb of North Liverpool when his job ended, and he's never looked back. He said there was a catalogue of chilling incidents, 
but a few in particular stood out. He said, I remember going into the basement one night to get a blanket to keep myself warm. As I walked in, I saw a man, a man in a white coat with no head, walk past and stray through the wall. I flew out of the room. It was terrifying. Another time I was at reception, and there used to be a stone staircase opposite. I looked up, and I saw a woman in a Victorian dress. She was there for a second, and then she disappeared. I found out that she was the old matron from when it used to be an orphanage. Since its closure, the building has fallen into a state of disrepair. The winding staircase has come with anti-suicide grills, and lead to seemingly endless treatment rooms and laundry rooms. Mr Gray said, There were so many stories, so many people saw things, staff were terrified of going to parts of the hospital because of the paranormal activity. Newsham was the site of a sanatorium and mortuary in the 1800s, and is often considered one of Liverpool's most haunted buildings. Mr Gray said, On the old sea ward there was an old cast iron staircase that nobody would go up because it led to a corridor that had lines of cupboards where the children were put in if they were naughty. You could hear banging from the cupboards. He added, If you've never been to Newsham Park, take my advice. Never go. That place is evil. I worked there for 13 years and I will never go back. One person who didn't take John's advice is Nicola Aegis, a reporter for the Sun newspaper who in October 2022 joined paranormal investigators Helen Nicholson and Mandy Taylor at Newsham Park Hospital for an overnight ghost hunt that she would describe in her article as pure terror. She wrote in the newspaper what happened. It's midnight, and I'm in an abandoned former orphanage and psychiatric asylum, praying my eyes are playing tricks on me. Nobody else seems to notice the lanky silhouette lurking from behind our paranormal ghostbusters, until a ball appears from a dark corner and slowly rolls towards me. Just days before Halloween, I was meeting researchers Helen Nicholson and Mandy Taylor at Newsham Park in Merseyside, one of the UK's most haunted buildings. The 19th century Grade 2 listed property stands derelict, and is believed to have once housed Moore's murderer Ian Brady. With sightings of spirits, visitors being physically attacked and furniture moving on its own, even professional ghost hunters have been traumatised by the building. Helen who runs Newsham Park's ghost events for events firm Haunted Happenings told me, I've only just started coming back here after what happened last time. It scared me so much. We were given a tour of the building a few months ago when I heard a scream in the basement. It was so loud. I stopped the tour because I was convinced everybody must have heard it, but they hadn't. It was a woman's voice, very high-pitched and so distraught, saying sorry. It was as clear as anything and so unbelievably creepy. Even now, what I heard still affects me. Earlier this year, two Haunted Happenings customers were attacked while taking part in a vigil with Mandy. The man and woman who did not know each other both reported a burning sensation on their skin. When Mandy turned on the light, the woman discovered a deep scratch across her cheek, while the man had several red claw marks on his neck. Mandy, 45, said this isn't something a woman would do to her own face. Then she showed me photographs of the injuries. She added, I have also seen a shelving unit move six feet across the floor by itself. Many people have actually ran out of our ghost hunts and floods of tears because there's just so much sad energy here.
It's a dark, nasty place. Some of the things that happened here are horrid. The first stop on our tour was one of the most haunted areas of the building, a hallway nicknamed the Naughty Boys Corridor. This is where children were taken for punishment when the building was an orphanage from 1874 to 1949. It wasn't long before I found out why the Naughty Boys Corridor has such a frightening reputation. As soon as I opened the hallway door, I heard a table squeaking as it aggressively rocked back and forth at the far end of the corridor. But when I ran over to join the paranormal researchers, the movement stopped, and I asked if it had been a hoax. I was about to walk away after giving our photographer an unimpressed look, when a toy car that had been placed on the table to communicate with spirits started to roll by itself and fell to the floor. I scanned the corridor, looking for an open window so I could blame the breeze, but instead I spotted a creepy china doll on the floor looking up at us. Don't feel scared, Emily tried and failed to reassure me. Remember, we're here because we want to find out more, and we would rather run to something than run away. I took a rain check and left the Naughty Boys corridor pronto. Next, I reunited with Helen as she returned to face her fears in the basement. When she pulled out a Ouija board, I said I would not be taking part and simply observed instead. As the planchette or pointer began to move, I felt an overwhelming sensation that we were being watched. That's when I spotted the tall shadow in my peripheral vision. Although the room was dark, I was convinced I could see a tall man with a slightly hunched back standing in the corner staring at us. Freaked out, I abruptly interrupted the seance to ask if anybody else could see him. Helen quickly pulled out her torch. Nothing was there. But mere seconds after she turned the light back on, a ball lit up the room as it rolled out from the same corner. The toy ball, which glows when its motion sensor is activated, had been left in the corner of the room by investigators so spirits could make contact. I screamed and our photographer rushed over, insisting that there would be a rational explanation. Perhaps there was, but I swiftly said my goodbyes, just in case. Newsham Park Hospital has also hit the headlines and the local news over the last few years because of no fewer than three incredible photographs that appear to capture the inexplicable. I am fascinated by any photograph that's alleged to show, for want of a better word, a ghost. It's a form of evidence that we can all see and make our own minds up about. I remember my first exposure to the world of the paranormal when I first discovered the small selection of books on the topic in the little village library where I grew up. Books such as Modern Mysteries of Britain by Colin and Janet Board and The Encyclopedia of Ghosts and Spirits by John and Anne Spencer. I remember carrying them home and poring over those pages for hours. When I looked at the black and white photographs, my world was changed forever. I was 11 or 12, and not as wise to the world as I am these days, so I simply took these photographs at face value. I was looking at ghosts. Ghosts, therefore, must be real. I had some sleepless nights, I'm not ashamed to say, but I couldn't help myself. My curiosity outweighed the undeniable fear that I had. Some of the photos that really stand out in my mind are the photograph taken at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich in 1966. An incredible picture which clearly shows a figure holding the handrail of the tulip staircase. The brown lady at Raynham Hall in Norfolk, taken in 1936, 
a semi-transparent but definite figure descending a staircase towards the unwitting County Life magazine photographer. And the hooded monk-like figure posing for the camera at Newby Church in 1963, a figure which is estimated to be 9 feet tall. All three photographs look too perfect, and anybody looking at them for the first time will immediately say fake or double exposure. However, experts maintain that there is no trickery involved in any of these three. All three of these photographs that I've just described can be seen on the Instagram at HowHauntedPod. That's not to say that the experts can't make mistakes. Take the famous photographs of the Cottonleaf Fairies as an example. A series of five photographs taken between 1917 and 1920 by cousins Elsie Wright, who was 16, and Frances Griffiths, who was 9, in Cottonleaf, near Bradford. Arthur Conan Doyle, best known for writing Sherlock Holmes but also a keen spiritualist, was so impressed by the first two photographs taken in 1917, he described them as clear and visible evidence of psychic phenomena, and he used them to illustrate an article on fairies for the Stand magazine. These photographs immediately captured the public's imagination. These two photographs and the original glass plate negatives were sent to Harold Snelling, a leading photography expert. He concluded that the two negatives were entirely genuine, unfaked photographs, with no trace whatsoever of studio work involving card or paper models. Conan Doyle sought a second opinion, so sent them to Kodak, where several technicians examined them and concluded that they showed no signs of being faked. These photographs appeared in books, magazines, TV programmes and all manner of popular media for decades. This was until 1983, when the cousins, Francis now aged 87 and Elsie aged 82, admitted that they weren't real. They were cardboard cutouts. Elsie had copied pictures of dancing girls from a popular children's book at the time called Princess Mary's Gift Book, and she'd drawn wings on them, before cutting them out and propping them up on hat pins. They disagreed on the fifth and final photo, with Francis maintaining that this one was genuine, but Elsie admitting that it, much like the four before it, was fake. In a 1985 interview on Yorkshire Television's Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers, Elsie said that she and Francis were too embarrassed to admit the truth after fooling Arthur Conan Doyle. She said, two village kids and a brilliant man like Conan Doyle. Well, we could only keep quiet. In the same interview, Francis said, I never even thought of it as being a fraud. It was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun. And I can't understand to this day why they were taken in. All five of the Cottonleaf Fairy photographs are over on the Instagram for you to take a look at. The first of these three photographs at Newsham Park Hospital was in September of 2016, when the Liverpool Echo reported that a local woman, Heather Size, had claimed to capture what appeared to be a ghost out for a jog, running past the abandoned hospital. The report read, A woman claims to have captured a ghost jogging outside the former Newsham Park Hospital. Heather Size from Kirkby said she captured what appears to be a paranormal apparition on a visit to the former asylum to take part in a ghost hunt tour. The 20-year-old claims to have spotted a spooky figure after taking a photo for a friend to show the creepy building that they were about to enter. She said, I booked a tour of Newsham Park Hospital for my friend's 21st birthday, as she's always wanted to do it. 
I didn't know where it was so my mum drove me there and I took a picture to show my friend so that she'd be scared. I couldn't believe it when I looked back and there was what looked like somebody running past. I already believed in ghosts but now I believe even more so and I'm really scared. The reporter passed the image around the Liverpool Echo office and there were several different theories of how the mysterious ghost ended up in the picture. Some guessed that it was the reflection of a jogger running behind the car, while others claimed it was the reflection of the heat events inside the car. Heather admitted that some of her friends had also been sceptical about the image. She said, I know what I saw, but some of my friends thought it may have been an app that I had on my phone, but it's not. I took the picture, and there was nobody jogging past when I took it. The Liverpool Echo was once again the source of a story in May 2017 entitled Chilling Picture of Ghost Girl Captured in Group's Photo at Old Asylum. It went on to say, An experienced ghost hunter captures what he claims is a chilling picture of a haunted figure before beginning a tour of an old asylum. Philip Barron said he has taken hundreds of photos but has never seen one so vivid he wasn't able to debunk. The 45-year-old told how the ghost girl of Newsham Park has caused a stir on Facebook as none of the other people in the image recognise the figure. He said, We always begin our ghost hunts with a picture of the group. I have done this many times, and this is exactly what I did. I took the picture on my phone and just put it in my pocket, didn't even look at it. It wasn't until the next morning, after it had been posted to Facebook with other pictures from the night, that I saw it. Philip, who hosts events for haunted happenings, said he has been going ghost hunting for about 12 years and finding the truth is a key part of the process. He said, I have never come across anything like this before. Of course, we tried to debunk this straight away. We asked everyone who was there if they remember this person, but they don't. In June 2021, the Liverpool Echo reported on a woman in a blue cardigan, seen in the window of the abandoned building. The article read, A nan was left gobsmacked after capturing the image of a ghostly woman in the window at Newsham Park Hospital. The nan, who didn't want to be named, shared the picture on Facebook group The History of Ghosts, Myths and Legends of Merseyside and Beyond. Uploading the picture to the page, ran by Keith Braithwaite, she wrote, This is Newsham Hospital in Liverpool. It's been closed for years. Can anyone see a woman at the window? The nan said that she had been taking a spontaneous picture of her husband and grandson, and only noticed the woman when she looked back at the picture. In the picture, a dark silhouette type shape can be seen behind what appears to be light coloured curtains in the window. However, the nan said that there were no curtains at the window and she has even been back since to check. She wrote, There were no curtains on the window, but in the picture there is. As I said, I wasn't looking for anything at the time, just taking a picture, and I noticed it later on when I was looking back at the pics. After posting the spooky image on Facebook, a number of people got in touch with their theories on what it could be. One wrote that they could see an old lady in a dark dress with a white lace collar. While another wrote, I can see her too, as well as a lady in a blue cardigan. And another wrote, looks like somebody looking out the window in a blue cardigan, probably is. Others said that the picture looked like a dark haired woman, with some even commenting that they could see two figures, possibly a woman with a child in front of her. Since taking the picture, the nan has returned to the same spot, but the window now looks completely different and has no curtains in it. She wrote on the Facebook post, 
I've been back over a few times and took more pics but the window now looks entirely different. It's weird. My grandson loves going to see the building. I was gobsmacked when I looked at the pics. It gave me goosebumps. This photograph and both the 2016 and 2017 photos are on the Instagram now at HowHauntedPod. Let me know what you think. Since 2020, the old hospital has been used exclusively for paranormal investigations. With Haunted Happenings, have an exclusive access to take brave ghost hunters in the building overnight. Haunted Happenings promise on their website, You will not fail to sense the torment of those who belong to its long and torrid history. Some of the testimonies on the Haunted Happenings website for those who've joined them after dark and headed into the hospital demonstrate the potential of what could happen for those who dare to take on Newsham Park. Pete W said, The experience with that gurney will stay with me forever. I still can't explain what happened, and I don't know how it happened. The way it moved up and down the corridor and then into the cinema room and then finally stopped to watch the film. Unbelievable. Jess S wrote, The building is incredible and very spooky. We experienced a lot more ghost activity than I expected. I was tapped on the leg and the head on several occasions. In the locker room we used a Ouija board and spoke to a woman who told us that her locker was number 67. We couldn't find it and when asking where it was there was a huge bang on a locker door. Which happened to be number 67. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Huge thanks to the wonderful Sabrin Chandler-Lewis, listener and friend who lives across the pond in Miami. She was my first ever Patreon and has very kindly helped me enormously with the research for this episode. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to Newsham Park Hospital. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. This episode's coming soon. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get access to exclusive episodes where you'll join me on an actual paranormal investigation and you'll get to hear the audio as it happened. The seven episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod to find out more. If you aren't a fan of Patreon or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to support the podcast why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee? You can do this by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast episode description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out we're heading to Scotland into a castle steeped in 800 years of murder, betrayal and curses. In 1920 work was being done on the castle and the skeleton of a woman was found within a wall. This unknown woman was given a burial and the castle was immediately plagued with all manner of supernatural happenings. 
the skeleton was exhumed and reinterred within the wall, and it stopped. But that's not to say that this castle is now ghost-free, as it has a colourful cast of spectral characters that are all set to remain here to this very day, stalking the ancient halls and corridors. Let's meet them together next week, when we head north to Aberdeenshire and enter the 13th century Scottish baronial fortress of Fivey Castle. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? Haunted?